This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads? Now you can when you subscribe to our new premium offerings on Apple Podcasts and Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or open You Must Remember This on Apple Podcasts to learn more. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we return to our season in progress, Erotic 90s. In our last episode, we talked about showgirls. That episode ended with what Vanity Fair described as a collective cringe within the industry about erotic films in the aftermath of that movie's catastrophic box office failure. But it takes Hollywood a long time to turn a train around. And for the rest of the decade, there were many attempts to salvage the commercial and creative prospects of films dealing with sexuality. Today, we're going to talk about two films from 1996, which had virtually no impact on the U.S. theatrical box office, although both had longer lives on home video. This is, as I say at the top of every episode, a podcast about the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. And these two films definitely fall under that rubric. Both are crime films in the noir tradition in which two women fall in love. One of these films was virtually secret in 1996 and nowadays is essentially forgotten. The other film has only gained in reputation over the past 27 years, as the audience has become increasingly aware of the secret history behind its making. Wild Side is the final film directed by Donald Camel. 
co-director of the 60s cult classic Performance. Camel co-wrote Wild Side with his wife, Gina Kong, and was inspired to make the film as a kind of gift to her. It starred Anne Heche as Alex, a banker moonlighting as a hooker, Christopher Walken in one of his most delightfully unhinged performances as an elite money launderer who avails himself of both of Alex's professional services, and Joan Chen as the woman they both love. Wildside's producers fired Camel during the editing process and dumped the movie on HBO in February 1996, releasing it on video that May. Between these two releases, both humiliating at the time for a filmmaker who thought he was making a movie that was bound for the Cannes Film Festival and not straight to cable, Camel shot himself. No mention of the director's suicide made it into the one-paragraph review pegged to the home video release printed in Entertainment Weekly, which did mention Quentin Tarantino twice amongst three complaints that Wildside was merely a Pulp Fiction ripoff. That same month, Wildside producer Avi Lerner told Variety that Wildside, quote, wasn't a gay picture. It was about two women falling in love and the evolution of that love. So in May 1996, gay was still considered a dirty word when it came to selling a movie. But 11 months later, Wildside was rushed back onto cable to capitalize on the new stardom of star Anne Heche, who was now extremely famous due to the fact that she had come out as the girlfriend of Hollywood's most prominent out lesbian, Ellen DeGeneres. Another thing that happened during that 11 months was the release of another film about two women in love, which was also pegged by some as a Tarantino derivative. The directorial debut of Lana and Lily Wachowski Bound could have been derided as a filmic adaptation of the fear-mongering directed towards Thelma and Louise, released five years earlier. Ridley Scott's film was, directly or implicitly, criticized by some for depicting two women who dared to use violence as a response to violence, who hated men so much that they must be lesbians. Bound is about two women in a lesbian relationship who gleefully kill and steal from men in order to be together. Unlike Thelma and Louise, Bounds, Corky, and Violet drive off into the sunset together and not off a cliff. Also unlike Thelma and Louise, Corky and Violet didn't seem to piss off male viewers. Their on-screen coupling was perfectly calibrated to turn on men who were the natural audience for a crime movie while also speaking to women and queer people, who at that time had few opportunities to see anything reflecting their experience in a mainstream genre film. Today, we're going to talk about the thorny concept of lesbian chic in the 1990s, and about the entertainment industry's willingness to exploit the aura of gay women to a point paired with its fear of turning off a core audience that was presumed, maybe rightly, to be predominantly homophobic. 
We'll talk about what this moment was like for Anne Heche, an actress whose life and death were marked by tragedy that was totally separate from her brief stint as a poster girl for lesbian love. And we will talk about the Wachowski siblings, who at the time they made Bound were perceived as straight cis men while they were scattering clues to their secret identities as trans women. Join us, won't you, for part 15 of Erotic 90s. The term lesbian chic gained currency in the early 90s. We've talked about Madonna and her sex book era sexual fluidity. This was essentially the culmination of a flirtation that had begun several years earlier. In the late 80s, Madonna had been best friends with comedian Sandra Bernhardt. The two memorably appeared on David Letterman's late night show together in 1988, wearing matching outfits of white t-shirts and jean shorts, and joked about their relationship. A few years later, the two had a falling out, allegedly over model Ingrid Caceres, a girlfriend of Bernhard's who was photographed kissing Madonna for sex and went on to become the singer's constant companion around New York. In 1998, New York Magazine described Caceres' look as Butch Audrey Hepburn, which is a fair summing up of the kind of style that qualified as lesbian chic in the 90s. The biggest event of this moment was probably the August 1993 cover of Vanity Fair, which featured supermodel Cindy Crawford shaving singer Katie Lang, a Grammy winner who had been the first female pop star to come out. The cover image, highly provocative for the time, had a bathing suit-clad Crawford hugging Lang's shaving cream-smeared face to her breast. Inside the magazine, there was a lengthy profile of Lang, in which the language used by writer Leslie Bennett's reveals that up to this point, the very idea of lesbian chic struck much of the straight mainstream as a contradiction in terms. Quote, This is a woman who was clearly born to perform. Not that you'd necessarily know she's a woman at first sight. After you watch her for a while, you realize how warped your own stereotypes are. In the beginning, you simply see her as unnatural. Her face is utterly bare, devoid of makeup. Her hair has been shorn with what appears to be complete disregard for how flattering the results will be. She wears clothes that don't reveal or exploit her body, clothes to move in, and boots that could carry you for miles. You can watch her for years and never even be aware she has breasts. Lang's presentation of femininity may not have been normative at the time, but the photos in that magazine were extremely glamorous and she looks beautiful in them. A fact not lost on MAC Cosmetics, who soon made Lang the face of their Viva Glam lipstick. MAC, an unusually queer-friendly brand which donated a portion of their profits to AIDS research, was not alone in using imagery of lesbians to move product. Banana Republic did a couple of campaigns featuring quote-unquote gal pals, including one featuring three women with an assumed level of intimacy called My Chosen Family. 
1994, when they launched groundbreaking unisex fragrance CK1, Calvin Klein featured Jenny Shimizu in their ads, giving her equally prominent placement to Kate Moss. Mechanic-turned-model Shimizu was, unlike Moss and most models of the time, Asian, androgynous, and openly queer. She also had a fling with Madonna and a relationship with Angelina Jolie, Shimizu's co-star in the 1996 film Foxfire. This is all just a little bit of background to give you a sense of how Hollywood and American popular culture thought of and exploited the idea of lesbians leading up to these two films getting made and released in 1996. There was an increasing sense that a woman who had sex with other women could be cool or look beautiful, but depiction wasn't exactly endorsement. As we'll see, the majority of Hollywood would still assume that queerness was commercial suicide for several years to come. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 90s, there was a fascination with the late 60s. And so it's no wonder that Donald Camel, who had only made two films since the Mick Jagger starring performance shot in 1968, was able to find backers for a new film in the middle of the decade that resurrected Woodstock. The studio behind Wildside would be New Image, which up to that point was best known for schlock action and cut-rate erotic thrillers, many of which went straight to video. One of Camel's collaborators, Drew Hammond, said that New Image got behind Wildside because they were, quote, trying to break into the American art film market and achieve some degree of respectability. The fact that Wildside represented respectability to New Image suggests what their previous standards were. At its best, Wildside is self-consciously pulp, a pastiche of low culture tropes done in a style reminiscent of John Cassavetes or Abel Ferrara, meaning an incredibly heightened realism. Kong described it as a bit of a send-up of the financial industry, but it feels more successful as a send-up of post-Tarantino crime movies that also manages to be a moving melodrama about two women who find escape from the cruel world of men in one another. Here is where I will take a second to note that when Camel and Kong met, he was in his 40s and she was a teenager. Though facts are hazy and those close to Camel would not give his biographers specifics, it appears that she moved in with him when she was still a student at Hollywood High School and they married three years later when she turned 18. They apparently met through Marlon Brando, who was close with Chena's mother. Chena was called Patty then. Donald renamed her Chena, spelled China, 
after they got together. Brando, who had flirted with starring in more than one Camel project and collaborated with him on a treatment which was later published as a book called Fantan, apparently had a falling out with Camel when he took up with China, who Brando saw as a daughter figure. Boundaries were not exactly a Camel specialty. While he and China were casting Wildside, an actress who auditioned for them filed a report with the Screen Actors Guild, claiming that China insisted on, quote, French kissing the actresses they auditioned. On a staff and crew list for the film dated February 4th, 1995, China was credited as writer-slash-dialogue director. The credit of dialogue director was a throwback to the early sound era, when sometimes an acting coach of sorts was brought in to work intimately with the performers. But even then, it wasn't supposed to be that intimate or coercive. SAG apparently threatened a lawsuit, but didn't follow through. Camel's biographers justified China's um, passionate methods by noting, quote, since the Wildside project was largely Donald's gift to China, she apparently felt a major responsibility for the casting of the lead role. In her second memoir, Call Me Anne, published after her death last year, Anne Heche writes that it wasn't just French kissing that Camel and Kong expected from her, and that when she protested, New Image threatened to sue her. Here is a segment from the audiobook of Call Me Anne, narrated by Heather Duffy. I felt they meant they'd try to ruin me by taking my dignity and telling the acting community that I was uncooperative on set, all because I wouldn't finger Donald's wife in his office. A necessary step, according to him, to test to see if I could pull off a convincing lesbian sex scene with the gorgeous Joan Chen. China, Donald's wife, was apparently very comfortable with her sexuality, and he said she could help me get comfortable with mine. I said, I think I got this. Thanks, Donald. How about I act like I know what I'm doing? In that same paragraph, Heche describes Wildside as one of the worst movies ever made, possibly the worst movie ever made. It's an opinion certainly colored by her negative experience with Camel and Kong. It is inexcusable for a writer and director to demand a sexual favor from a performer as a condition of employment. And the fact that Camel came out of and apparently never moved beyond the 60s sexual revolution doesn't excuse it. If anything, to still be using the we need to make sure you're ready to lose your inhibitions line in the 90s now feels pretty pathetic. Camel, who starred in a Kenneth Anger film that Bobby Beausoleil also worked on, was just two degrees of separation away from Charles Manson, and sometimes it showed. But it wasn't just him. Again, the 90s fetishized the 60s in many ways, and one of those ways was that the level of a woman's sexual worth was often defined by her willingness to go along with sexual expectations defined by men. That Heisha's livelihood was threatened when she wouldn't go along shows how little, by the 90s, 
had changed at all. Paige was such an unknown quantity at the time of her casting that her name was frequently left out of trade reports about the film. Donald Camel and Gina Kong were not Hollywood power players, as we'll see, but they had power over Anne Heche. I wish this had not happened to Heche for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that it taints a movie that, I think, does the opposite of celebrate sexual coercion. The first dialogue scene in Wildside is the first date between Christopher Walken's Bruno, referred to as the biggest money launderer in the world, and Johanna, the alias Haitia's banker Alex uses when she takes gigs as a high-end call girl. Johanna figures out quickly that Bruno is a powerful man who secretly wants to be dominated. She leaves him bound and gagged on the bed while she goes to the bathroom to freshen up, and he immediately calls his chauffeur, Tony, to untie him. Tony, played by erotic B-movie vet slash former husband of Melanie Griffith, Stephen Bauer, is directed by the rightfully paranoid Bruno to drive Johanna slash Alex home and determine whether or not she's an undercover cop by propositioning her. We learn that Tony is the real villain of the piece when, after dropping Alex off at a fake address, he shows up at her real home, rapes her, and then informs her that he is actually the undercover cop. When she tries to report the rape, Tony's partner threatens to have her fired from the bank and arrested for hooking. We then see Alex at her putative straight job, where her boss shows disappointment in her unwillingness to put out to some guy to secure an account. This turns out to not be a problem when Joan Chen's Virginia shows up in Alex's office, looking to start an account for her alleged shoe company called Foot Fetish. This business meeting turns into a boozy, flirty lunch. The two women then drive in Alex's convertible back to her office, where they make out in the executive powder room. Alex is aware that Virginia is moving money on behalf of Bruno, and still, Heisha's performance conveys a kind of instant lust-slash-love that completely scrambles her rational mind. This puts her on more even footing with Bruno, and the rest of the movie consists of these four protagonists, each of whom could be financially or legally screwing the others, and are physically screwing one another in various combinations, dancing around one another. There's also a MacGuffin of a computer virus, which Bruno wants Alex to install in the bank's computers so he can move millions undetected. But the actual mechanics of Wildside's plot don't matter nearly as much as the vibes of these four actors interacting with one another and constantly scrambling each character's desires and fears with sex, money, violence, and mutable identities used as trading chips in their power games with one another. Walken spends a good deal of the movie with a gun in one hand and a cigar in the other, with Bruno overcompensating for his masculine insecurity as much as the actor is overdoing his performance. But this is a movie in which too much is exactly enough. As Bruno puts it just before boarding a helicopter and flying out of the movie, life is extreme. Wildside certainly goes to weird and chaotic extremes. There is so much partner swapping and eavesdropping and mutability of gender roles 
then it might as well be a screwball comedy, albeit one with more rape. But the instability of the characters and the storytelling also creates higher stakes for every interaction. At no moment watching this movie do you feel like you know what's going to happen next. Most surprising is the strange tenderness in the end between Bruno and Alex, even as he knows she's stealing his ex-wife and probably understands that the two of them will make off with at least some of his money. Wild Side was shot in February 1995. There was a rap party at Yamashiro. The invitation promised dinner, drinks, dancing, and karaoke, as well as $3 valet parking. So far, so normal. But in perhaps the first sign that the producers of the film did not have his back, Camel had to finance the last shots of the film himself, paying out of pocket to shoot Haish and Chen, making their escape on a bus to Mexico. Camel and Frank Mazzola, who had edited performance as well as Camel's Demon Seed, finished a rough cut of Wildside after a month of editing, with the plan to take the finished film six weeks later to Cannes. But when they screened the rough cut for New Image, the distributor protested that Alex's character motivations were unclear and that Bruno wasn't a clear enough villain. Camel presented another cut a couple of weeks later, and this time the producers complained that it was too sexually explicit and would not be able to obtain an R rating. The new image crew also objected to the editing style, which they complained contained too many 1960s flash cuts. In the director's cut of the film's one major sex scene, there are constant flashes to black, or flashbacks to moments from their first meeting. This had been a signature of Camel's filmmaking since performance, but now producer Ellie Cohn allegedly said that these quick cuts were, quote, fucking up a perfectly fine lesbian sex scene. Another thing that was apparently objected to was the inference that Christopher Walken's character rapes Stephen Bowers. The eye-for-an-eye punishment of the double-crossing chauffeur-slash-undercover cop by his male boss was considered an automatic NC-17, as opposed to Tony's hetero-rape of Alex, which was good to go under the requirements for an R. A third cut of the film screened in the market at Cannes that May. It's unclear if it was submitted for a competitive slot at the festival. But by that point, New Image had fired both Camel and Mazzola from the movie. Wild Side had gone into production during the gravy era of the erotic thriller. As Andrew Hens put it in a trend piece that ran in Variety in the fall of 1995, after Basic Instinct, quote, Indies began mass-producing erotic thrillers, which are a lot cheaper to make than action films. Eventually, the flood of cheap sex thrillers all but drowned the genre's commercial value. In other words, there were signs that the trend was played out even before Showgirls became a box office bomb. The purpose of this variety story seemed to be to suggest that despite the short-term failure of that NC-17-rated spectacle, the trend could get a second wind if producers and distributors were more disciplined about going for the more marketable R rating and more ruthless about quality. 
I'm still waiting for the good NC-17 film that gets a wide release, said Eamon Bowles, who had spearheaded the release of the unrated hit Kids that summer. Kids was a hit where Showgirls was not, according to Bowles, because, quote, Showgirls' aesthetic is still a Hollywood movie aesthetic. It's not revolutionary or subversive, whereas films like Kids are of a new generation, a new sensibility. I think many of us would disagree that Showgirls is not subversive, but in this moment, there was a need to distance sexually explicit content that did or could connect with audiences from the still fresh stink of that box office bomb. In this variety piece, new image chief Avi Lerner trumpeted Wildside as another example of a new sensibility in opposition to the Verhoeven punching bag. Showgirls tells a story about how much a woman is willing to do to get what she wants, Lerner said. Wildside is a real love story between two women who care about each other. Though that variety story cited the name talent of Christopher Walken and Joan Chen as a selling point, Donald Camel's name was never mentioned. Not only had he already been fired, but he had been sent a cease and desist letter by New Image, who in June discovered that Camel had been showing his director's cut to potential buyers. In turn, Camel's lawyer reached out to the DGA. The producer is cutting the picture without the creative involvement of Donald as the director, noted attorney Robert Wyman. I would appreciate any help you can give in attempting to collect Donald's directing fee, which has not been paid despite the fact that he has fully completed principal photography of the picture, as well as the director's cut. On January 17, 1996, Camel received his final payment for Wildside of just $5,500, which was due upon delivery to producer of the final answer print. Beverly Ware, a lawyer at the DGA, wrote to Camel that New Image had agreed to pay this, quote, even though they contend the answer print has not been delivered yet. Obviously, they didn't want him to perform any additional labor on the film. Ware added, also, Mr. Cohn told me yesterday that they are still editing the film because the MPAA has given the version they submitted an NC-17 rating. A couple of weeks later, New Image debuted their cut of Wildside on HBO. Camel's name had been replaced with the pseudonym Franklin Browner. Camel spent the next few months trying to salvage Wildside. He opened up negotiations with Lerner to release a director's cut, maybe in Europe. Camel hired a new editor at his own expense to continue working on the film. But that editor ended up having an affair with China. Camel's biographers contextualize this as a moment of double failure for Camel. He had intended Wildside to be a love letter to his wife. The movie he wanted to make had been rejected before audiences could even see it, and he had lost his wife to another man. Many accounts of Donald Camel's suicide place the primary blame on his depression over Wildside being taken away from him. Variety's obituary claimed that he had, quote, fallen into depression when Wildside was re-edited by its production company and premiered on cable. But reportedly, Camel seriously contemplated suicide in late 1992. 
And after Chena left him in the fall of 1995, Camel was inseparable from his handgun. One friend observed that he slept with it under his pillow. I knew things were going to happen the way they happened for a very long time, some 20 years, Kong would say later. Camel died on April 23, 1996. There were rumors that he, to quote one report, shot himself in a way that allowed him to bleed to death in a 45-minute necro-narcotic stupor. Versions of the story that Camel remained conscious for close to an hour after putting a bullet in his own head were printed in publications ranging from the New York Post to the British newspaper, The Guardian. The source for this seems to have been China, who told friends that her husband had been studying suicide and had learned where to fire a bullet into his head in order to die pleasurably. Camel's biographers countered this improbable tale with police and autopsy reports. The police report claimed that China had moved back into Camel's house while preparing to move out for good. And then on April 23rd, Camel walked into the kitchen, handed China some papers, then returned to the bedroom and fired his gun into his head. Paramedics were on the scene and pronounced Camel dead around 12 minutes after China called 911. When editor Frank Mazzola heard of Camel's suicide, his immediate thought was, impossible, I had seen Donald recently, and all he had talked about was getting Wildside back from New Image and finishing it the way we had intended. That would happen, but not for another three years. In the meantime, another crime film built around a lesbian relationship would hit theaters and launch its filmmakers to the A-list. After the break, Bound. It is tricky to talk about how Bound was perceived when it was released and how its filmmakers were perceived without opening up a whole can of worms in terms of the appropriate and sensitive ways to talk about trans people who had public lives before they came out as trans. I'm not going to use the dead names of the Wachowski siblings, and even when I'm quoting them from before their transitions, I've used the names they go by now. That said, I don't think you can understand how Bound was perceived in 1996 without acknowledging that the women who we now refer to as Lily and Lana were then perceived as straight men making a movie about queer women. Even while their directorial debut now seems to be a cry for recognition from two queer women who were deeply in the closet. Bound famously begins in a closet. The first images are of a woman's closet in which Gina Garshon lies literally bound and gagged, styled in the 1996 movie idea of Butch. As we saw in the coverage of Katie Lang, mainstream culture was still coming to terms with the idea of Butch women, and there was an anxiety over why a quote-unquote pretty girl would engage in a performance of masculinity. That cultural anxiety was separate from how trans people were seen in 1996, but in Bound, whether they were consciously doing so or not, the Wachowskis were providing tools for uniting those conversations. 
Gershon is introduced in a closet filled with feminine women's clothes. The subtext here now seems like text. Now that we know that this movie was made by two women who felt trapped in masculine appearances. But in 1996, these were dog whistles that viewers generally couldn't hear. And the Wachowskis at that time didn't want them to. In a 1998 interview, Lana said, We think that not only gay people or queer people live in closets. Everybody does. We all tend to put ourselves into these boxes, these traps. And so what we tried to do is we tried to define as many of the characters through the sort of trap they were making out of their lives. Getting out of the closet was meant to take on a bigger meaning than just the typical gay meaning. In hindsight, this feels like a closeted, doth protest too much thing to say. Like, we're not queer, it's just a metaphor. Of course, it's heartbreaking that they felt they had to do that. But it's totally understandable why the Wachowskis felt they could not be openly trans in Hollywood in 1996. Even 10 years later, as Lana would learn when an extremely queerphobic and kink-shaming 2006 Rolling Stone expose essentially outed her and implied that the relative disappointments of the Matrix sequels were due to her secret sex life, the mainstream media had a long way to go. The Wachowskis have only been able to talk about what they really meant to say with their early work very recently, although in some ways they were saying it all along. In one 1996 interview, when asked how they felt to be compared to the Coen brothers, the Wachowskis gave what the reporter described as a long pause before answering. Eventually, Lily admitted, We haven't quite gotten that response down pat yet. And Lana said, We want to be compared to more sisters. At the time, this played like a joke. But of course, now it reads differently. As Lily said in 2020, there's a critical eye being cast back on Lana's and my work through the lens of our transness. And this is a cool thing because it's an excellent reminder that art is never static. Lana went a step further. Discussing Bound after a screening at the Music Box Theater in Chicago in 2018, she explained how the seed of Bound was planted in her sense of alienation as a cinephile who understood she was trans years earlier. Like the, the relationship that I have to the story really begins with me struggling with uh, the depiction of people like me in media, I guess. So you'd have to sort of say, you know, I, I watch Psycho, I watch Dress to Kill, Sleep Away Camp, just like the, the endless films that are with trans people who are psycho killers and chopping people up. And it really hit me the hardest with uh, Silence of the Lambs. And Silence of the Lambs is made by an amazing, brilliant filmmaker, and it's Jodie Foster, and I love her so much. But the film just made me physically sick. I couldn't even sit in the theater. And I ran outside, and I went to the bathroom, and I was like crying in the bathroom. And, and I just sat there, and I was trying to think of like one film that, had, that was set in sort of a genre world and where an LGBT character sort of won and went off and lived happily ever after. And I'm like, I see everything. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm racking my brain and I can't think of one. And then I was just like, in this tiny, icky, sticky bathroom, I was like, 
Fresh out of a five-year prison stint, Corky meets Violet, a gothy femme fatale who lives in the apartment next door to the empty unit that Corky has been hired to fix up. Violet has also done a five-year stint as the arm candy of Caesar, a mid-level mafioso played by Joe Pantoliano. When they were still in the closet and performing as straight men, the Wachowskis answered questions about how they approached writing lesbians by saying that with Corky, they basically just wrote a conventional male role from classic film noir. Burt Lancaster in The Killers, or Fred McMurray in Double Indemnity. But when producers offered a bigger budget to actually make the character male, they turned it down. As Lana put it, we were like, well, that movie's been made a million times, so we're really not interested in it. As in those noir films made under the production code, this couple's initial dialogue is charged with sexual promise. But because it's the 90s, the movie can be explicit about the follow-through on that promise. In Bound, there are two show-stopping sex scenes in the first 20 minutes of the movie, the second one featuring both actresses, sweaty and topless, with Tilly's very trendy Chanel Vamp nail polish on prominent display. Bound was hardly the first Hollywood film to feature lesbian sex scenes. Tony Scott's The Hunger came out 13 years earlier, just to name one example. But a film like The Hunger was blatantly playing to a male gaze. Bound was preceded by two years by Go Fish, an extremely authentic product of Chicago's lesbian community and an art house hit that was still incredibly avant-garde and not geared toward a mainstream audience. Though Bound has one scene that directly parallels a much more academic scene in Go Fish, in which one woman questions another lesbian's bona fides because she has sex with men, Bound was generally attempting to thread the needle between those two poles. It was a mainstream film with the backing of the legendary producers Dino De Laurentiis and Aaron Spelling, and at the same time, its depiction of queerness was influenced by the Wachowskis' collaboration with Susie Bright, the lesbian sex educator and porn critic. Bright recruited real queer women as extras and made a cameo herself. She counseled that for women who have sex with women, hands are very important. And so the filmmakers made it a rule to focus on the character's hands throughout the film. They didn't want it to be a man's version, Tilly later said. There is a male version of what lesbians are, and you see it in the softcore porn movies all the time. They really wanted to get it right. They wanted to be very respectful of the lesbian community. The similarities between Bound and Wild Side go beyond genre and lesbian sex. Both movies often feel claustrophobically contained within hotel rooms or apartments. Much of Wild Side was shot at the old Ambassador Hotel, while a bit of Bound was filmed a few blocks down Wilshire at the Talmadge. They are both about women living double lives, who men underestimate based on their appearance at their peril. In both films, women are being used by men, but they find something genuine in another woman. They both include scenes where a woman has to make cocktails as male crooks sword fight. Violet is an observer on the margins for the bulk of this confrontation in Bound. 
In Wildside, Alex stands by, occasionally interjecting in the long conversation about whether or not Tony deserved to be raped by Bruno as punishment for raping Alex. Chen and Tilly both were styled with short black hair and dark burgundy lipstick to play women in relationships with criminal men who treat them like property, who escape after falling in love with another woman. Both actresses brought an element of the exotic. Tilly is also half Chinese, although this was unknown to most viewers. Both movies end with the two heroines in a vehicle together, two women with a past, as Wildside puts it, crossing over to what will hopefully be a future on their own terms. Both films end with a kiss, although in Wildside it's a tender one on the forehead, while Bound goes for a girl-on-girl version of a classical Hollywood open-mouth clinch. Unlike Wildside, which includes a number of scenes in which Alex and Virginia are secretly intimate, woven in and out of their encounters with the men they're trying to hide their relationship from, Bound front-loads the sex to make sure the audience invests in Violet and Corky as a couple before the crime plot kicks into gear. For me, the weakness of that film is that the relationship between the two women, which is interesting, is marginalized for a big chunk of the running time while Bound turns into a movie about male gangsters, which comparatively feels rote, building on the history of that genre by making the gunplay more slick and the bloodshed more stylized. In Bound, everything is aestheticized, especially the violence. Because it's so pretty, nothing in it feels as real and as brutal as Bauer's rape of Heche followed by his cop boss informing her that she has absolutely no options when she tries to report him. Bound is the more conventional, accessible film. I prefer The Unstable Lunacy of Wildside, a film which seems to dance with the tropes of the 90s crime noir in order to scramble them to the point of unrecognizability. Bound builds on the panoply of femme fatales that had sprung up in films ranging from Basic Instinct to The Last Seduction in reaction to masculine insecurity. On a plot level, Bound could be read, like Basic Instinct, as playing to fears that lesbians posed a danger to men. But that reading of both films depends on a default assumption that male protagonists should be allowed to get away with anything and female protagonists should be submissive to them, no matter how shitty the men behave. In Basic Instinct, Catherine turns the tables on Nick, but he deserves it. Similarly, in Bound, the lesbians pose a threat to individual men and male power that deserve to be threatened. As far as I can tell, Bound never got the criticism directed at Thelma and Louise and Basic Instinct for quote-unquote male bashing. One wonders if the fear that such criticism would hamper the movie motivated many actresses to steer clear. The Wachowskis said Bound only got made because Tilly and Gershon agreed to do it. Tilly had recently been nominated for an Oscar for Bullets Over Broadway, and Gershon was a hot commodity due to her role in Showgirls, which hadn't come out and become a punchline yet. But Gershon later said that her agents fought to keep her out of the movie. Casting, Lana said in 1998, was difficult. Quote, 
because no actresses were really interested in the parts. I mean, you can sort of understand their position because they're heavily influenced by agents and managers when a slightly controversial thing comes along. We were first-time directors, and it could have easily been cheesy softcore porn. According to Lily, actresses who were supposed to audition were no-shows. Quote, we'd have appointments scheduled for that day, and women would just not even show up. And we imagined that they'd read the script on the way over and get to the sex scene, and the script would go flying out the window. So Bound was considered too gay by some, but the film was not exactly embraced as a queer film in the lineage of Go Fish, or the work being done by out men like Todd Haynes and Greg Araki, or even Hollywood's attempts at gay cinema, usually directed by straight men. As Kale M. Keegan notes in his book on the Wachowskis, scholars admitted to being embarrassed to admit that they liked what they thought was, to quote Keegan, a lesbian film made by what appeared to be a pair of straight men. In fact, Bound's production notes distributed to journalists made a point of describing the Wachowskis as, quote, married heterosexual brothers from the Midwest a statement unusual enough for a press notes packet that Janet Maslin commented on it in her review of Bound in the New York Times. This message about the Wachowskis, a conspicuous rebuttal that there was no queerness to see here before anyone could ask, was received by journalists, some of whom almost reflexively used it against the film. As straight writers-directors go, the Wachowskis' success at creating two strong and sexy lesbian characters may surprise you, wrote Tristan Terramino in The Advocate, adding, of course, most of the time, you can tell this film was made by men. We can't fault Terramino or anyone else for believing that the Wachowskis were straight men in 1996. Still, in the 90s, Credibility was everything, but the methods for evaluating credibility were often superficial at best. This was a year after the same publication ran a set visit report on Bound, which included griping from an anonymous lesbian crew member complaining that they didn't buy Gershon as Butch because she looked more like, quote, a trendy straight woman with tattoos, Seattle grunge hairstyle, hip thrift shop wardrobe, and knockout curves. Many of Bound's negative reviews took the film to task for apparently burlesquing gender and sexuality. In Vogue, John Powers warned that Tilly's, quote, squeaky-voiced, big-chested sexpot routine is turning her into the step-and-fetch-it of women, and wrote off Bound as a cynical enterprise made to dazzle agents. Then writing in the LA Weekly, Manola Dargis saw no lust in the sex scenes, just choreography and the conceit of two filmmakers with nothing more on their minds than fake dykes and bloodshed. These kinds of reviews must have been hard to take for the Wachowskis, who were being judged as straight men while feeling as though that identity was, to paraphrase Lana, the box which their true queer women selves were trapped in. When Bound premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January 1996, it got rave reviews. 
But when Universal's indie arm, Gramercy Pictures, opened the film on 260 screens in October, it didn't make a huge impact. It never expanded to more screens. And in three weeks, it was gone. Its $3.8 million gross was about a million and a half more than Go Fish had made two years earlier. But Go Fish had been made for $15,000, and Bound was budgeted at over $4 million. It didn't matter. Warner Brothers, previously uneasy about offering the siblings the budget they needed to make The Matrix, took Bound as proof that they knew what they were doing as directors. Because they were perceived as straight men, they weren't perceived to have a political agenda the way the new queer filmmakers were. Because of this, the Wachowskis were able to more easily make a mainstream franchise that was full of subversive ideas about the fluidity of sex and gender. And Bound eventually found its audience on home video, which is how I first saw it in the summer of 1997 in a room full of teenage boys who saw it as a cool gangster movie in which hot chicks showed tit. Lana later said she was motivated to make a film that balanced the scales of queer representation, but Bound's slick packaging and submerged politics allowed it to fit in a trajectory of lesbian chic that split the difference between the male gaze and female gaze. You have to wonder if Bound would have had a different life had it been released six months later, amidst a major media frenzy over a couple that, at first, gave a stratospheric boost to lesbian chic, and then ultimately revealed the hollowness of treating real people's lives as a trend. After the break, Anne Heche, Ellen DeGeneres, and the reemergence of Wild Side. On May 5th, 1996, the New York Times published a brief and sketchy obituary of Donald Camel. The second-to-last sentence included two glaring inaccuracies, which remain preserved in the version of the obit available on the newspaper's website. The sentence read, and still reads, His last film, The Wild Ride, with Christopher Walken and Joan Chen, was completed last year but has not been released. Of course, that film was called Wild Side, and it had been released on HBO and home video. But Camel didn't consider that version to be his. In any case, as we talked about a few episodes back, The Last Seduction was the exception to a pretty strict rule. Once a movie showed on cable and got a home video release, that was usually the end of the story, especially when the guiding creative force behind the movie was dead. Just a minute ago, I pondered what might have been for Bound if it had been released a little bit later. Wild Side was ahead of its time in a lot of ways, but if its release had been a year and a quarter later, after its star had suddenly become one of the most famous women in the world, would it have still languished in obscurity? Anne Heche had steadily worked in film and TV since 1987, when, at the age of 17, she escaped a truly horrific childhood, which had included repeated rape by her father, by taking a role on the soap opera Another World. But she hadn't played lead roles in mainstream films, 
and though she had quietly dated Steve Martin for a couple of years, she wasn't a household name as either an actress or a celebrity. Her agents and managers were expecting this to change in 1997, when she would be the top-billed female in two major films with big male stars, Donnie Brasco and Volcano. Then, a few days before the Volcano premiere, Heche went to the Vanity Fair Oscar party, and there she met and instantly fell in love with Ellen DeGeneres. Then the star of her own sitcom, Ellen, DeGeneres was on the verge of coming out of the closet, both in real life, via a televised confession to Oprah and on the cover of Time magazine, and on her sitcom, turning Ellen into the first primetime show to have a gay character as its protagonist. She was, in short, the highest-profile lesbian in the world at that time. In her first memoir, Call Me Crazy, Hayes writes that when she told her agent, manager, and publicist that she planned to take DeGeneres as her date to the premiere of Volcano in April 1997, her team staged an immediate intervention. Hayes was warned that if she walked the red carpet with DeGeneres, she would be blacklisted from Hollywood and that if Volcano wasn't a hit, her personal life would be to blame. The world isn't ready for this, they told her. No wonder Ellen has to come out on national television, Heche thought. Even you guys are scared of gay people. She goes on to write, I had had no idea why gay people stayed in the closet, and now it was hitting me like a ton of bricks. People want them to. Heche defied her handlers and brought DeGeneres to the volcano premiere. They were photographed together there, and instantly their lives changed. Their coupling became hot international news, and before they even really had a chance to get to know one another, for better or worse, they became the poster girls for out lesbian love. There was a lot of hand-wringing in the media, suggesting that Heisha's career would be crippled because no one would ever believe her as a straight romantic lead going forward. Director Lizzie Borden wrote an impassioned editorial in the LA Times titled, What's the Problem? Let Her Do Her Job, in which Borden tried to contextualize why Heisha's coupling with DeGeneres caused such a stir. It's okay for a woman like DeGeneres or K.D. Lang to come out. This kind of lesbian is one of the guys, the kind of woman guys can look at girls with. For these women, coming out is often a major political statement, often a career vocation. But when one of the girls comes out, not as a grand political statement, but because she happens to have fallen in love with another woman, it's acceptable only if it's for the vicarious pleasure of men. What seems to disturb everyone is that Heche came out with DeGeneres, one of the boys, not that Heche had an affair with another woman. That point of view explains the evident compulsion to reappropriate Heche and her lesbianism for the male gaze. Witness how she was introduced in an Esquire piece that ran in the August 1997 issue. It is a beautiful thing to make out in public if you have just discovered that you are a lesbian and you are famous 
and the woman with whom you are making out is much more famous and cameras are present, which means we can all watch via tabloids and entertainment news programs and such. This is all guys want, to watch, to savor, to dream. Other lesbians might not care to watch, but we do. New Image seemed to be targeting those guys who wanted to watch when, a month after Ellen and Anne's coupling, they went to Entertainment Weekly to announce a re-release of Wild Side. Heche, the magazine noted, suddenly seems like an extremely marketable commodity. So New Image is preparing to do what it previously refused to do, issue Camel's full-length version of Wildside, and is doing it, sad to say, over the director's dead body. While some may celebrate the resurrection of a distinctive director's work, Avi Lerner is celebrating one of show business's oldest rules of thumb, sex sells. This picture is really something you haven't seen before on any screen, Lerner told EW. Every man will have something to keep in his home, and it's something every woman would like to see. The EW story claimed the new home video release would be in stores that fall. It is difficult to research home video releases. There is just not a lot of easily accessible data, especially for this era, the last years of VHS before DVD took over. So I don't know for sure, but I can't find any evidence that New Image actually put out any new cut of Wildside in the fall of 1997, other than a sentence in a Time Out London article from 2000 claiming that in 1997, New Image had released an edition, quote, with more lesbian sex reinstated to cash in on star Anne Heche's recent high-profile coming out. It does look like there was some kind of VHS release in 1999, but since this release was completely ignored by the media, I don't think it contained any new material. There is no indication that New Image ever released anything that would have qualified as Camel's director's cut. The actual director's cut of Wildside, or the closest thing to it, emerged in 1999 when editor Frank Mazzola and China Kong presented their recut of the film at the Edinburgh Film Festival alongside the local premieres of Christopher Nolan's Following, Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper, and Doug Lyman's Go. UK-based Tartan Films and C4 paid for the restoration, which runs 112 minutes, 20 minutes longer than the original straight-to-cable new image version. The director's cut, though longer, contained less scenes. Mazzola said he based the cut on his conversations with Camel in the weeks before he died. Very, very little was written about Wildside before this restoration. And even writing about the restoration is difficult because it fell into relative obscurity shortly after. It's because of that obscurity that the Entertainment Weekly piece from 1997, in which New Image's Avi Lerner promises to release the director's cut, feels so conspicuous. This was the most ink this movie ever got in a mainstream American publication. And it's promising an event that didn't happen. My theory is that it was never going to happen, that Lerner was hoping that merely announcing plans to capitalize on Anne Heche's 
newly revealed real-life lesbianism would draw attention to the butchered version already on video store shelves. Of course, it's possible that he did try to work with Camel's estate to release a new version of Wild Side, and they couldn't make a deal. China Kong donated her and Camel's papers to the Academy's Margaret Herrick Library, but the Wild Side files do not include any information on the restoration or post-new image releases. It's also possible, maybe even probable, that Heche didn't want footage of her acting a lesbian sex scene out in the world while there was so much speculation about her off-camera sex life, never mind the abusive situation during production that she would describe much later, and that she was able to stop a U.S. release. It's heartbreaking to find out that Heche was sexually harassed by Camel and Kong and that she hated this movie because her performance is so good in it, so fierce, so perfectly threading the needle between naturalism and stylization. I don't know if Heche ever watched the director's cut. If I was her, I probably wouldn't have. But when I watch it, I see that she was capable of so much more than was usually asked from her in the movies she made while she was a star. Of course, even though I really like Wild Side and Heche's performance in it, the best finished product doesn't justify any kind of abusive conditions during production. Heche was certainly in a complicated situation. In her first book, she wrote that her career did suffer from her relationship with DeGeneres, but not because no one wanted to cast her. When the romance became public, Heche had just been cast in Six Days, Seven Nights, a romantic comedy with Harrison Ford, who personally called Heche to reassure her that, quote, I don't give a shit who you're sleeping with. But Ellen, the sitcom, fizzled out not long after the coming out episode, which had been written off by some as a cynical ploy for ratings by a mediocre show. It used to be an unfunny show about a bookstore manager, wrote Karen James in the New York Times. Now it can be an unfunny show about a gay bookstore manager. According to Heche, after the cancellation of the sitcom, DeGeneres fell into a depression and didn't want her girlfriend to go off on location. As Heche wrote, I became focused on trying to make her life better and ignored mine. When I went away to do a movie, she became jealous and worried about me meeting someone else. Our arguments were brutal. She was terrified that I wanted to be with a man again. So I stopped doing movies. In 2020, in an appearance on Dancing with the Stars, Heche Moore directly connected that relationship to the fact that she didn't make a studio movie for 10 years. The last studio movie in which Heche played the lead role was Gus Van Sant's Psycho, which, when it was released in 1998, was perceived as a massive creative and commercial failure. Psycho didn't end the career of its other lead, Vince Vaughn, but it did stall it for a while, until he found a new lane with bro comedies, beginning with Old School five years later. Heche doesn't mention Psycho at all in either of her memoirs. But regardless of the why, Heche's window of opportunity to star in studio movies did close before the end of her relationship with DeGeneres in 2000. She continued to work steadily, in theater and especially on TV, 
until her shocking death in the summer of 2022. I had always liked Heche as an actress, and when news reports surfaced of the car crash through which she suffered her fatal injuries, I found myself unable to look away. I was particularly haunted by a video taken from a helicopter in which she appeared to try to crawl off the gurney that was trying to put her into an ambulance. I found it frightening, something more visceral and real and connected to the fear of death than anything I've seen in a horror movie, but also moving. Anne Heche lived a whole life marked by trauma and chaos, which no one should have to suffer, and which she's fought so hard to overcome. And that fighting instinct was so much a part of her screen presence, especially in Wildside. And in this, the last filmed moment of her life, she was fighting against all odds to stay alive. Next week, we'll be talking about a film with a very different take on a same-sex relationship. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Now, top-tier subscribers to Patreon can hear ad-free episodes. You can also subscribe to ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.